signature. Can you punch me in on the spot? Where you want me to punch in?
And you're listening to CITR F1102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, Notorious Miami from 1976 with Kill That Roach. Today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Bill Line. Bill Line from June 30th, 1995. Yes, 2017 is the 30th anniversary of the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. I had my anniversary show a couple weeks back, but I wanted to jam in one more thing. I promise only Well, maybe there will be a couple things in upcoming weeks. But this was an interview that I wanted to play, but I ran out of time. It was 30 years and 20 hours of the Nardwar show. So you're going to be subjected to only uh, probably about an hour's worth of Bill Line, Bill Lynn, talking about how to build a UFO from June 30th, 1995. So this is Bill Lynn, June 30th, 1995. And to intro Bill Lynn, here is a little package that was sent to me, Nardwar. My name is Jean Daddy. I exist in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I am sending this package to you as a gift, but also a warning of my existence. This package contains one, a Jean Daddy, Jean Daddy first issue comic book. Thank you. And two, an audio CD containing our first effort as a band, plus our newest single, Salmon Candy. Unfortunately, we ran out of cassette tapes. I think we would get along. Drop me a line at jondaddy.band at gmail.com or Facebook or Instagram. Jean Daddy, Jean Daddy is raw, raucous rock and roll. Jean Daddy is an enigma. Do do loo do. Jean Daddy.
You're listening to CITR Radio, <coughs> FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. And uh, who are you on? Who's, who's on the line right now? Hello, are you there? Well, yeah, this is Bill Line. I'm down in uh, Lamy, New Mexico. And who are you, Bill? Well, I'm a writer who's written a book called Space Aliens from the Pentagon. And give a bit about a background about yourself. Uh, well, I was, let's say that I had a background in... Uh, like, go on, perhaps, talk about a bit about the CIA. You were once recruited to join the CIA. Maybe start from your youth. Well, they, they, uh, the CIA uh, attempted to recruit me, but I had a background in Air Force intelligence for a short time when I was in the Air Force. I wasn't very high-ranked, but I was intelligent, so I, I just picked up a lot of stuff uh, about the field of intelligence. And later on, the, intel uh, the uh, CIA, uh, George Bush, was apparently uh, impressed enough that he wanted me to be an assistant director uh, in charge of the ninth region of the CIA. What exactly and, uh, did that entail? <clears throat> well, that would have uh, put me in charge of the ninth region, which is the federal region out of Austin. Texas, and it kind of astounded me because I didn't think I was qualified for the position, and the person who made the offer to me was a girlfriend who, whom I just learned had, was, was a CIA agent, and she was also, she didn't tell me this, but she turned out to be related to my first wife, and uh, the offer was coupled with a uh, requirement that I go back to my first wife, which I thought was very odd. And it took me a while to figure out that George Bush and my first father-in-law were buddy-buddy back in the 50s so uh, in, in, uh, in West Texas. And so I also knew George Bush because my cousin was his private secretary for five years. And when I would go to visit my cousin at Tidewater Oil Company in Houston, well, uh, good old George would come in and out of the office and stop and chat. What did you talk about? Oh, just kind of, you know, this and that. You know, I was actually, I was in Houston once. When the, I remember when I met George Bush for the first time. I was in Houston uh, at the Houston Endowment Corporation uh, which and something called the Battleground Corporation, which was in the building next door, was in the Gulf Building. And that turned out to be a CIA uh, arrangement. They were trying to shut me up because uh, I, had, uh, I had announced that I was going to publish the book back in 60, about 67. I was going to publish th this book, that, that the same thing, really, except for some things that have happened since then, to make it maybe a little more interesting even. But I was going to publish this book because I was angry about what I was hearing about flying saucers, and I, w I had run across some information that they were fabricating this stuff, using physicists and all sorts of things to write books to uh, to fabricate this stuff about the aliens, which is phony. And I was tired of hearing about it. I was going to publish this book, and they came down on me like a ton of bricks in the university. Well, I went through a, a long, drawn-out, horrible situation where I was accused. I was set up uh, by a, 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 an art historian. I was set up on a phony charge of scholastic dishonesty, taken before a student board and a faculty board and tried and convicted of scholastic dishonesty, which was the whole thing was a setup. And finally, when the whole thing was all over, I announced to the student attorney who had been appointed to represent me, whom I had 
found out was connected to the CIA, I announced to him that I was going to blow the cover on the whole thing. And uh, right away, the CIA started uh, rolling out the red carpet, giving me uh, things, giving me uh, uh, wonderful things to keep me busy. I was given a commission to do a painting for the Battleground Corporation. It turned out that the Battleground Corporation was uh, was uh, owned by the uh, son or the, the nephew of Jesse Jones, who was uh, mixed up in the. Uh, you can read about him in uh, Trading with the Enemy by Charles Higgum. Uh, he was one of the uh, neo-fascist or fascist Americans who was at one time a Secretary of Treasury under Roosevelt's first administration. Well, so then I found out that Houston Endowment, who was chaired by that same person, that John Jones, was also laundering money for the CIA. So here they had this academic uh, thing set up. And uh, so they were just trying to uh, to smear me with uh, some real good uh uh, things, good vibes to shut me up, and they were giving me all sorts of things, and then I found out it was a CIA operation. Initially, they wanted you to join the CIA. This seems a bit weird. Well, yeah. Uh, Why did they want you to join the CIA, and what did you know that made them want you to join the CIA? <laughs> well, it was a number of things. I think it was, it, it partly <clears throat> was Bush uh, was probably going to uh, uh, you know, use me later. Well, that, the typical thing that these guys do is they'll pull somebody in, and then they'll uh, work, eventually you'll end up being like Secretary of State or some damn thing. You know, they'll they'll uh, they'll get you in the CIA, and that'll give you some credentials. You know, and, and before the public, and then they'll move you up, and eventually you're you're one of their people. You know what I mean? They they pull you up, and then they'll use you later. It's a it's an Illuminati stunt. It also involves a lot of family connections, and uh, I felt like it was a nepotistic almost thing. I wasn't related to George Bush, but I felt like that George Bush was after some mineral rights that my family owned, and that was the reason he was laying all these things on our family. But I knew that 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 these things were were so family connected. Like the CIA agent, she was related to my ex-wife's. Uh, family, and uh, she owned an oil company, and she was buddy-buddy with Bush because he owned an oil company, and my ex-father-in-law was tied in with some oil companies. So, you know, it was just uh, f oil and family, oil and family. Have and, you kept uh, in contact with George Bush at all, Bill? No, no, no. I, uh, uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> I didn't like the idea of I was surprised, I was totally astounded that they would even make an offer to me like that because I had expressed, all the while I was going out with this with this lady, I was expressing my disgust with the uh, the CIA and the way they manipulated things, including political parties. I had run across some information where, where CIA people were manipulating political parties and all sorts of stuff. And I felt like, uh, gosh, uh, you know, they ought to know that I don't go along with this kind of stuff. Why would they offer me this big job, you know? But I guess they figure they can buy anybody out with enough money or the right right kind of situation. Somehow they got the idea that uh, that I would, uh, you know, probably accept this or they wouldn't have offered it to me. It paid a lot of money. They I got could, to your father, didn't they? Yeah. They What they did was, this all happened over here in New Mexico. I, I announced that I was preparing to write this book again in 1977. What's the title of your book? Just for listeners out well, there who are wondering. It's called Flying Saucers, a man-made, or uh, uh, flying saucer, uh, first uh, space aliens from the Pentagon, flying saucers, a man-made electrical machines, and uh, so.
so back in 77, I knew, I'd known this guy who's a retired Air Force colonel uh, who with a degree in law, <laughs> and I'd, know, I'd known that he was in Air Force intelligence, and he was supposed to be retired, but I didn't know that he was uh, involved in all this stuff. And, I, and I, he comes out to my house and makes his offer to me. I was uh, interested in writing a book on petroglyphs. I've researched that for years. I have a manuscript on that. And that ties in, ties the petroglyphs in with a lot of ancient uh, civilizations and so forth, linguistic connections, all sorts of things. And uh, uh, he he wanted me to write a book uh, saying that the petroglyphs were left by aliens from space. And he said he had the, the contacts all set up and uh, and so forth over in Arizona to publish the thing. And I just, I just flipped out. I said, "Boy, I don't know where, where you got the idea to write trash like that." I said, "The petroglyphs, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I believe are connected to ancient peoples. They're certainly not left by aliens from space." And I said, "That would be a bunch of garbage." And I said, uh, "You know, there aren't any aliens from space coming down here." And I'm writing this book on flying saucers. And uh, he threatened me and so forth, and uh, tried to get me to shut up about it. And, uh, and then I found out. Uh, through a girlfriend that he had trained the people known as the two. Now, there are a couple that run a, run a group called Osiris, and they went around all over the West and, and Midwest. They'd go into towns and tell people, and, and ha they'd have a following pretty soon, and they would say they were going to uh, all be picked up and carried away to their home planet. And uh, then they'd all disappear, and their cars would be left parked somewhere out on a hill somewhere. And uh, then the cars would be towed in, and then uh, somebody got curious and started tracing these uh, license plates and found out it was the same people doing it all over the place. So here you've got a very expensive thing where these people move around, they go into communities, and then they pull off this, this fraud. The cars are hauled into a public pound, then they're subsequently released, which means that the public officials are involved in, in the hoax. Uh, because they wouldn't, they would announce that these people had been found if, if uh, you know, if, if they weren't, because uh, these people were supposed to be missing people, you know. After that, so then they'd use the cars again in another place, and so forth and so on. So uh, that's just one of the many things that I address in the book. But basically, uh, one of the one of the things I want to cover in the book is that I'm uh, emphasizing is uh, that. Uh, that this idea of aliens from space is, uh, originated with the government, and, uh, and, and specifically it originated with the Nazis. They were the ones that started spreading this to conceal flying saucers, and uh, which they were building. They got from America, by the way. They got the they got the secret of flying saucers from America. It was invented by Nikola Tesla, and it was stolen from him by a by a spy uh, named George, George Sylvester Furick, who who was a uh, a well-known intellectual and uh, and poet, and uh, but he he got next to Tesla somehow. Maybe some background on Tesla, a bit of background on Tesla, Bill Lynn. And again, we're talking here to Bill Lynn from New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, yeah, or Lamy, outside, just outside Santa Fe. Just Lamy. outside Santa Fe. And if you have any questions for Bill regarding UFOs and his book called UFOs Are Real or UFOs Aliens from the P Pentagon, um, you can phone here at CITR at 822-2487. That's UBCCITR. We can't put you on here, but we can relay your question to Bill if you'd like. Um, just going back there, I guess your father, was he run over by the CIA? Uh, no. 
uh, Nikola Tesla was run over by the Nazis in New York City. But no, I mean, <clears throat> your dad, your father. Oh, my, my father was, my father was coming out of. <clears throat> I saw a flying saucer. Our whole family was having an ice cream party with some friends in 1953, and a flying saucer hovered over our backyard, and we got a real good look at it. And it it did some maneuvers and then took off towards uh, Fort Bliss right along uh, the, the uh, southern New Mexico border, right towards El Paso, uh, and uh, at 9,000 miles an hour, I estimated. It did two 90-degree turns, and, then, and, then, uh, and you could see the electrical discharges and everything. Well, in 1957, my father was coming through Leveland, Texas, on a sales trip, and he just left Leveland. It was, it was after dark, and a uh, yard, large flying... Uh, uh, saucer, I guess you could call it, came over his car, uh, and uh, his lights and engine went out, and he had he sat there. This thing was around 200 feet long. It was egg-shaped, hovered over his car just a few feet above it, and he sat there and waited for 15 minutes or more, <laughs> and then uh, uh, when the thing left, he was able to start his engine, but his lights were burned out, so he had to go back to Level and spend the night. And early the next morning, he drove on down to West Texas, down to uh, Odessa. Didn't say anything about it. Got up, uh, uh, had a little bit to eat, and then took off to the Ford house to have his lights repaired. So I turned on the TV and saw the news report of all these sightings in Leveland. I knew what had happened because his lights were all burned out. So, uh, and he'd had to spend the night in Leveland before driving home. Otherwise, he'd have been home the night before. So I went down to the Ford house and asked him about it and asked him why he didn't say anything about it. And he said, well, he said, I didn't want to be called crazy. But uh, uh, he was, at one point, when this guy tried to get me to write this book about the petroglyphs being being left by aliens, um, uh, he evidently... My father came through a couple of weeks after this guy had tried to get me to shut up. And he came through, and my father comes through, on a, uh, returning from a sales trip, comes through and tries to dissuade me from talking about flying saucers. And I thought, well, this is really odd. First this guy goes to work on me, and then my own father. So I got in an argument with my father over it, you know, because uh, I'd never seen him uh, kowtow to anybody uh, trying to shut him up about anything. And uh, so then uh, a couple of days later, I uh, was downtown in Santa Fe, and I went into a coffee shop, and I ran across an art dealer I knew in there. And I'd known that uh, UFOs were a favorite topic of his anyway because he grew up in the Panhandle, Texas Panhandle. Along and there was a couple other people stand, sitting there. They'd just gotten back from the Scottsdale Market, where they were selling art over there. And uh, I sat down and I said, uh, uh, "How you doing?" And they said they'd just gotten back from the Scottsdale Market. And I said, uh, "I said, well, uh, you know, my father was over just uh, was over at the Scottsdale Market." And uh, oh, this was only a couple of days after the guy threatened me. Uh, so after my father had rather tried to suppress me. Uh, and I said, my father just got back from the, from the market, and they asked me, well, well what's his name? And I said, uh, Raymond Lyon and uh, my mother. And he says, well, uh, wasn't that who we saw so-and-so talking to? And the so-and-so was the guy identifying the book as the MIB. Well, this, is, this guy's talking to my father and mother over in Arizona. Uh, now, he, 
I, my father never said anything about knowing this guy who, whom, whom I'd known for a few years, and the guy never said anything about knowing my father. So I knew that he'd talked to my father before my father came over and tried to shut me up. So then I told another girlfriend about this incident, but I didn't tell her not to tell the friend. Unfortunately, she told the friend. The friend thought that my father had revealed to me that this guy had intimidated him. So then my mother and father lost their business, which was, uh, it was about nine or ten states that they were market builders for six manufacturers in Dallas and a couple of more from the West Coast. So their business, they were out of the business. That was it. So they evidently had enough power to get my father and mother fired for disobeying, he thought, by telling me that it, that they'd been threatened by this OSI guy, Office of Scientific Intelligence. That's who the guy works for, and that's the, the branch of the CIA that these MIBs work for. Men in black. Men in black. They're just nothing more than people, and they they even have they, – they fake all kinds of mystical stuff and parapsychology. It's all stuff that we inherited from the Nazis because at the end of World War II, the OSS – uh, office of, uh, I mean, yeah, the Office of uh, Strategic Services took in this this Nazi intelligence network. The Galen uh, organization, wasn't uh, it? Yeah, it, it was called AP6 RSHA, uh, and uh, that was uh, that was the SS group that was in charge of flying saucers, and uh, and the disinformation program run by the Germans, and it was all tied into all this mysticism that surrounded uh, Hitler and and Ananerbi and all this other stuff, and uh, it and it was uh, you know it, it spread this stuff that was started by the father of parapsychology, Hitler's uh, guru, who was uh, uh, Horbiger. Uh, Hans Horbiger. So the bottom line of your argument, Bill Lynn, we're speaking here to Bill Lynn from Santa Fe, New Mexico, Lamy, New Mexico, and if you want to ask Bill any questions, it's 822-2487, phone here to CITR, and we can relay your question to Bill. Your bottom line is that UFOs are man-made, and they were initially invented by Tesla. Yes. Who is Tesla, and what did his inventions do to world leaders? Well, Nikola Tesla... Uh, was born in Yugoslavia and he immigrated to this country. He already had a great number of discoveries behind him when he arrived in America about 1883. And but the only thing that he had on his person, because all his other all his other effects were stolen, was a set of plans for an electric flying machine, which he'd conceived while in technical school in Graz, Austria, as a young man. And he had conceived this idea of a flying machine, which would be electrically powered. And he stated at one point that everything that he'd invented was nothing was was all for this electrical flying machine. So that means all of, of, of Tesla's patents, which we know of at least 150 or so, 144 that we know about, a number of other, others are secreted away by the government. But all of these patents were related to, to his flying saucer. Now the first thing that important that he came up with was called the Tesla coil in high frequency. Put out high frequency currents. And of course, alternating current and revolving magnetic field, which is all related to this this flying saucer propulsion system he was trying to trying to work out, and he was basing it on Faraday's and Maxwell's work, basically, and Lawrence, uh, the idea that uh, the electro electromagnetic attractive force, I mean, the electromagnetic reaction, is 10 to the 40th power times two stronger than the gravitational reaction, and that's huge.
that's a that's hundreds of uh, that's thousands of zillions times stronger than the gravity force. So his idea was to use electricity to take advantage of this force and use it for uh, uh, space propulsion. And and uh, so he invented all these things like the Tesla coil uh, to to make this electrical force which would propel a saucer. And he did a number of tests taking metal plates and subjecting them to high frequency high voltage discharges and and uh, uh, until he could work out the, the using different tuning on the coil and so forth to work out the method to make to make this propel using the ether the ether is this is this stuff that's in space it's it's according to the uh, uh, the two the two theories are the main the main proponents of this stationary quiescent ether uh, a solid state electrical ether is what uh, Faraday called it. Uh, it's carried along by the earth and it's and it's dense. Uh, we don't realize how dense it is because we're so un, we're so we're so uh, uh, sparse ourselves. Our own material that we're made out of is sparse in comparison to this ether, which fills space, but it's invisible because of the frequency level. It's so ultra fine that its frequency is invisible to us. But uh, this this ether can be pulled on with electrical force, and it, if you get the right voltage and the right frequency sufficiently high, uh, then you can pull and propel yourself through this ether by propelling the ether through you. It'll pass right through you. It'll pass through a, a flying saucer without disturbing anything. You just basically you you, you crank up this high voltage, high frequency uh, a propulsion system, and it just basically jets through this ether. And uh, and that's uh, that's the way the flying saucer works, <laughs> and uh, the electrical all of the phenomenon uh, phenomena which are reported about flying saucers are consistent with this the the, the glowing and the light effects and so forth, um, and uh, the the way that they behave in, indicates that they uh, they control uh, gravity inertia and momentum, instantly switching it uh, in any direction. So that there's no there's no centrifugal force to deal with. There's no inertia, and there's no momentum as a problem. You can actually create momentum instantly with electricity, and so and you can all repolarize it. You can turn 90 degree corners without any problem, and uh, so that's the way this thing works. Now Tesla invented this stuff and tested it by 1915. He was already building flying saucers, and by 1917 he'd invented a uh, device. Uh, uh, in, the, in conjunction with uh, Elmer Sperry of Sperry Gyroscope Company, he had come up with a device to control it, and uh, in other words, to navigate because the high electrical discharges around the saucer made it impossible to use a normal compass. So you had to have something else like a celestial guidance system or an inertial guidance system. So what you have is a gyro compass mounted on gimbals, which indicates direction, and then you have another device on that which is uh, which keys into that and tells you which direction you're going, and you can control your your direction that way without a compass. And the, the, the gyro compass uh, uses uh, angular momentum to to create a uh, a fixed direction, so that no matter which way the ship turns, the gyro compass stays in a constant direction and gives you a, a, a indication of what direction you're going or want to go. Uh, now the um, the, the this type of device I found at a salvage yard in uh, in 1979, 
And it turned out to be, after I bought it, the security people at uh, Sandia Base learned that I had it. Uh, it's called a Peiltochter Kompass in German, which means a Polar Slave Kompass. Now, that that the slave part is the part that, that indicates the direction you want to go, and the, and the master compass is the gyro compass. So this thing has a manufacturing numbers on it and shows that it was made in Germany by list in 1943. On October the, October the 1st, 1943, this thing uh, came off of a production line, which means that they had flying saucers at that time, which were electrogravitic. Uh, because you only need this to get around the problem of electrostatics. Now, subsequently, they adapted this to rockets, but the type that I have came off of flying saucer because it shows the peripheral uh, directions uh, on it. It's mounted horizontally so that uh, you have a 360-degree peripheral navigational system, and only a flying saucer would would navigate that way. So you believe, or you know, you believe that Tesla, or you know that Tesla built a UFO and he had these st plans stolen, or his invention <laughs> yeah. stolen from him. Why did people want to steal it from him? Perhaps you could go into a bit about the Bilderberg Group or the Trilateral Commission. Well, uh, I stumbled across more information here in New Mexico. I ran across an old man who was selling a work box at a flea market, and the old man had worked in this project at Los Alamos in 1937. And, and the workbox had, he, he'd carved the workbox in New, New Mexico folk art style. Uh, he'd carved on the box the, the, the highway going to Los, uh, to Los Alamos from where he lived in Powaukee. He put a big Zia sign around, the, a big sun sign around Powaukee, where he was from. And he'd worked in Los Alamos, and this thing was called P2, small P, large 2. Well, that P2... Uh, designation is repeated on the German Paltorter compass, which is called KT, large K, large T, dash T2. So there's, there shows the connection between this project and that, and, that, uh, and that project at Los Alamos, between the project at Los Alamos and the Paltorter compass. Now, I discovered from my friend Peter Van Dresser that Von Braun had come to New Mexico in 1937 and had worked in Los Alamos at that time, and the old man confirmed that. That he that that this German guy uh, von Braun had run this project, and von Braun came to New Mexico after he'd have been a, been appointed by Hitler to run this project at Peinemundi, uh, and he'd come over here uh, in absentia. He was still the director of that project for the Nazis. Came over here in '37 and '38 and worked with Dr. Uh, uh, Goddard, Robert Goddard, who had a uh, rocket. Uh, laboratory down in uh, actually Mescalero, just outside Roswell, near Roswell, and he had a, a launching area in Eden Valley, which is near that, and uh, so Von Brown had come over here to, to pick Goddard's mind. Uh, the first person to come over here was Willie Lay. He was part of the the German rocket project, but Lay stayed on, married a Russian ballerina, and became an American citizen and it actually worked for the government during the war uh, fighting the Nazis. So Lay was a brilliant rocket engineer and, and a lot of other things, a poet and a lot of other stuff, and he just fled the Nazis and, and stayed over here, where he's probably sent over here as a spy. That's probably how he got out of there, and the Smithsonian paid their way, sp paid Von Braun's way. Von Braun came over here, worked with Goddard, and went back and shot 3,600 rockets into England and Antwerp. Then he was immediately hired 
Uh, and, and incidentally, the symbol for that project at Los Alamos in 1937 was a triangle with a dot in the middle, which was the, the trilateral symbol. So um, immediately at the end of the war, under this Operation Paperclip and this Galen organization, Von Braun was immediately brought over here to, uh, again uh, and was, was put in charge of U.S. Army Ordnance Missile uh, Guided Missile Center in uh, Fort Bliss where he worked on rockets and he worked in, on flying saucers that were being tested at White Sands, Fort Bliss, and uh, over in Alamogordo. What exactly happened in 1923? We're just trying to get to the bottom of this investigation here. Well, with, in 1923, at, at the end of the First World War, uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, the American version was called the CFR, and the, the British version was called the IAA, Institute of uh, International Affairs. Uh, this was something conceived by uh, Cecil Rhodes to set up a... Uh, a, a they came together at Versailles and during the Versailles negotiations and formed a, a, uh, a unified group to work for a, a British-American world uh, imperialism. And uh, the first thing they did was uh, they drafted a resolution. Uh, Hans Morgenthau Sr. drafted a resolution called Morgenthau's Pastoral Policy, which advocated the, dis the extermination of all the Germans because they were an inher inherently warlike race. Under the Treaty of Versailles, they were going to exterminate the Germans and reduce Germany to a pasture land. And that was called Morgenthau's Pastoral Policy. And I'd heard about this, and I had thought that it was a hoax or a uh, fabrication. But in 1969, I believe it was, I was made privy to the actual document, which was in Lyndon Johnson's collection of documents that he'd inherited through various people, through uh, FDR. It had come from Woodrow Wilson's uh, uh, administration, and it was the actual document. And I saw the document, so I know it's true, and the document's in Austin, Texas, at the at the uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson School of Public Affairs and their files in that uh, in that uh, archive there, and uh, Sid Sid W. Richardson Research Center, um, and uh, so the document actually existed. Now, having failed to exterminate the Germans under the Treaty of Versailles, uh, then they went uh, they they backed the. Why SS. did anybody want to exterminate the Germans? Was this just to get money to get rich? It was to get the Germans out of the way because they were industrially powerful. And uh, the British and Americans could see that the competition from the Germans was uh, was very intense in that area. So they wanted to get Germany out of the way so they'd have a clear shot at world domination. And uh, the Germans made such good things, good cars, good knives, good this, good that. Uh, the idea was to get them out of the way. And they also financed the Russian Revolution. So the idea is to get the Russians out of the picture, too. And then they could... They'd have a clear shot at, at having the most sophisticated system to uh, to control the world, and it sounds like some sort of scheme cooked up by Pinky and the Brain, you know. But uh, uh, the uh, the whole thing was uh, that uh, they they wanted to get the Germans out of the way, and also it was a population thing, you know, population control. They take this excuse and just wipe out a whole uh, a whole uh, uh, civilization, and. Uh, of course, I'm sure that a lot of people found out about that, but I don't even think that Hitler knew about this thing specifically. I don't think he had documentation on it. It was kept under wraps, uh, so that uh, you know he he had he made allegations that the uh, that the Zionists were trying to wipe out the Germans, you know, 
but I don't think he knew that the British and the Americans had tried to exterminate the Germans. So evidently he didn't know about this. So I don't know why, but he should have. But uh, maybe he was part of it. That's the way I see it, is Hitler was part of that scheme to get rid of the Germans. And so that's the reason the Nazis were financed and put into business, because it would give the world an excuse to, to wipe them out with another war. And so... Hitler was put into charge, put in charge in 1923. Was chosen by Rockefeller's public relations man as the as the guy to to, uh, to uh, lead uh, Germany into uh, a horrible war, and uh, after which the New World Order was to come into existence. So, in other words, in 1945, with the birth of the United Nations, that was to be the New World Order, and that's what they referred to it as too, and. Uh, so they conceived this back in the at the end of the First World War, and they'd been moving toward it all that time. So uh, the whole thing with the Nazis was to give the world an excuse to wipe out the Germans. And so... And then people would get rich? Yeah, and everybody would get rich. Well, see, the Germans made a big... There was a bank, the banks in uh, Hesse Kassel. Uh, House of Hesse Kassel had always gotten rich off, off of mercenaries from Germany. they just farm out their citizens as soldiers all over the place and make huge fortunes selling these soldiers to people. So they were just basically turning the Germans into a bunch of war uh, mongers. In other words, the whole thing of Germany getting militaristic in the first place was a, was a result of uh, being exploited by so these bankers. Did, did Germany have an atom bomb and UFOs during World War II? Well, they had, they had a neutron bomb. I think they uh, see the thing I heard, always heard, and Philip Wiley documents this, uh, you know, in Generation of Vipers. This was written back in the 50s. Uh, he documents the fact that the, that the, Germ that the, <coughs> the bomb they built at Los Alamos was designed in Germany in 1931, right after uh, Lisa Meitner split the atom in a, in a German uh, chemistry, a physical chemistry lab. And uh, they got the idea to build a bomb, and they designed that. But I suppose what happened was they just sidestepped the atom bomb and built the neutron bomb because they tested it on North in North Africa. Uh, when Rommel went down there, that was the whole purpose of his uh, group going down there was to test the neutron bomb. And they test that, tested that and a number of other weapons while they were down there. And they had a post. I saw a postcard that was that was. Uh, acquired by uh, a friend who was in charge of the uh, POW camp of the prisoners from uh, from Rommel's Africa Corps. They were kept in Roswell. And uh, he had a postcard showing the neutron bomb exploding over a superimposed photograph of New York City. So there were two there were two photographs that were cut in two and 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 uh, put together to make this uh, postcard. So Hitler was chosen to lead Germany to defeat. Yeah. How come he didn't rebel, you know, with these weapons that he had, if he had UFOs and such, and just, you know, continue on with the power of Germany? How come he didn't well, go crazy? I don't know, except that there's just no explanation for why he didn't bomb Britain, for example. That's just one thing, why he didn't. Uh, uh, and and he, they actually surrounded the United States with 24 submarines carrying uh, uh, missiles that could be fired from underwater, uh, and uh, having neutron bomb warheads and celestial guidance systems on them. So they were ICBM missiles. They could be fired from underwater in these submarines. They'd surrounded the United States, and when, when, when the, all of that big scene was coming down in Germany in the, in the bunker,
that was nothing but a great big act to cover up for what was really going on, which was the German and Germans were surrounding America, and they worked out a secret agreement. I call it the trilateral contract, uh, Germany, England, and America, uh, in which certain things were stipulated, uh, that America would get all the technology and scientists and and uh, the flying saucers and Hitler and Ava Brown and Martin Boromon and all kinds of other people could uh, would get safe conduct and amnesty and new identities in South America or whatever, and they actually did this. Those those Nazis that went to South America would, went down there with new identities provided by the uh, U.S. Army uh, Corps, a counterintelligence corps. So Hitler did not die in a bunker, and you, in fact, Bill Lynn, yes, met yes. him and almost sold art him. to him? I didn't meet him. He came and he looked at a painting. And What uh, year was this? What year did you meet Hitler? 1967 at Hemisphere. He came as a guest probably of LBJ, but he had relatives in the, the area south of San Antonio, actually, actually between uh, San Antonio and Austin, in that area, he had relatives in Fredericksburg. He had an old uncle there that uh, who told my uncle, "Ach, that Adolf always was a troublemaker." And uh, so he had these relatives down there. He may have been visiting them too, but LBJ probably invited him over. And uh, but he was a guest at Hemisphere, and, and he was walking along the River Walk with his security agents, who were who were checking out the crowd, and they were trying to look uh, inconspicuous. Well, did he have disguise? Did he shave his mustache? <laughs> he had no mustache. It looked like he'd had some plastic surgery. Uh, but you could you could identify him. You know, he, he walked with a lamp. He was wearing a mustard-colored suit, which is kind of unusual. That was one of his favorite colors, kind of a, 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 raw, uh, a raw sienna color, a uh, light raw sienna color. And he was walking with a lamp, had on those same black shoes and those short short trousers. He always wore his trousers too short. And he was walking with a lamp, and he was dragging his right arm, too. And he had this woman with dancer's legs with him with red hair. And uh, so my friend who was sitting next to me, Bob, he immediately spotted him. I didn't say a word. Bob knew who it was. I knew who it was. And he came up and picked up this painting, and they looked up, and he saw that I was. we were staring at him. And his security agents got nervous and fanned him, uh, told him to put the painting down, you know, and he puts the painting down, and they get out of there. So they had these security agents who were coming out, and they came ahead of him, checked everybody out, you know, and then after he left, they checked everybody out again. And, and, and uh, so it was pretty obvious, you know. That uh, that this was a security team. They, I asked one of them uh, what he did, and he said he was an engineer. And I asked him where he was from, and he said Kassel. So uh, that made perfect sense because uh, Hesse Kassel is where uh, the banks, the big German banks, were. You know, and that would be a perfect place for them to to live. A nice, it's a nice resort, almost resort type of area. And uh, so <laughs> that's where they probably spent their last of their days, was in that area. And uh, so uh, then um, this all was consistent with this whole thing that I'd heard about. And uh, uh, another person whom I'd met had had access to all these papers that were in LBJ's possession that related to this secret agreement. And uh, so there was, an, a, there was a stalemate and a secret agreement made that, uh, that is 
different from what we're told about, what they call an unconditional surrender, which was just a sham. Weren't any word leo we The Russians knew about it, I think, because they were really upset. What? Yeah, weren't any word le world leaders upset that, you know, Hitler was still around? How come nobody wanted to do anything? Didn't Eisenhower give a warning? Uh, yeah. Uh, see, the way I look at it, the CIA came into existence when this Nazi group was taken in by the OSS. They were they were highly impressed by the by the uh, intelligence library and all the documents and and everything that the Germans had on Russia. They had a complete set of, you know, photographs, aerial photographs, maps, area studies, ethnics, uh, racial studies, language, you name it. They had the the, the works on Russia. Uh, and that became our modern intelligence, what they call intelligence libraries, which are, have all this material in it. So, for instance, when I was in the Strategic Air Command, we had all this stuff, and you could tell that it wasn't something that America had assembled. Uh, you could look at the documents and tell that they had been, that numbers had been taken off, and new numbers put on, and so forth and so on. And they were older photographs, and uh, and what what they would do is, let's say that. Uh, that we had a war and somebody was going into a certain part of Russia, well, they would load this library into a uh, into mobility boxes and would take it into that area so that the library would be there with uh, the army, which is how the Germans did it. So they had instant access to uh, references on that area, you see. So Hitler got off World War II, and all the things have to do with Tesla inventing that UFO back in the early 1900s. So every time you hear UFOs in the news, they're not really UFOs. They're not aliens. They're actually man-made things. <laughs> to what yeah. extent yeah. does the government go to cover this up? Like, for instance, a lot of people are going to talk about the Roswell incident. And it's been in the news lately because that guy Dave Grohl from Nirvana now has a band called the Foo Fighters, and they're on the Roswell label. Perhaps maybe you could explain a bit about, I love the word perhaps, the Roswell well, incident and how that's fake. About the, what, what's this guy you were just mentioning? Uh, Dave Grohl. He's in a rock and roll band called the Foo Fighters, and he's on the Roswell record label. There's even a record label oh, out of Roswell. Oh, he's called the Foo Fighters, yeah. Well, uh, and he's, that, yeah, he's called his band the Foo Fighters as well. That's interesting. Because a lot of people, they read stuff on, they see stuff on TV and they go, wow, UFOs are real. You're saying UFOs are real, but men, you know, they're man-made creations. Well, yeah, I saw a gun camera, uh, gun camera film made by 8th Air Force when I was in Air Force Intelligence. And, and some of the people that were watching those films with me were people who were on those bombers at that time when those, when those photos were made. And uh, they were made over Germany, northern Germany, when they were on bombing raids. And uh, these these uh, ships would fly around the bombers so fast. There were also some uh, uh, Messerschmitt 263s, which were uh, rocket-powered aircraft. They were interspersed with these Foo Fighters, but they were much slower. They were only going 500 miles an hour, and the Foo Fighters were going uh, probably at least 1,000 or more. Uh, they were they were circling around the bombers in a in a helical path as the bombers flew along. These Foo Fighters were circling uh, around them. Well, I wasn't specifically and wondering about Foo Fighters. I was just wondering, Bill. We're talking here to Bill Lynn, who believes UFOs, who knows that UFOs are real. I was wondering how has the government gone to cover up stuff? You talk about the Men in Black, you know, coming down, getting mad at you because you're exposing this. To what extent is stuff faked? In other words, the Roswell cattle mutilations. Well, they faked everything. Uh, they have faked uh, the saucers. Uh, they have uh, come up with this whole 
bunch of baloney about aliens. The original Roswell hoax was perpetrated by a group of intelligence guys down in uh, probably in in Almogordo, and they perpetrated it over at uh, the Roswell base, which was later called Walker Field. And Walker was not a flying saucer base per se. It was an old atomic bomb wing there. And over in, in Alamogordo, that's where the the Nazi scientists were assigned, and uh, along with uh, being in White Sands and also Sandia, Monsanto, various other bases, Los Alamos, and so forth. But uh, early, right after the war, this stuff was all coming into existence. And uh, but the the these these intelligence guys decided that since people were seeing so many flying saucers. See, after the war, they brought all that stuff over here to New Mexico. They brought some of it to Wright Pat, but they brought most of it to New Mexico. This is where most of it was brought, regardless of what anybody else says. This is where they brought it, and they brought uh, the largest number of uh, rocket and, and saucer scientists were brought here and distributed around these different bases according to what uh, different uh, branches of research they were engaged in. And, uh, you see, um, they... They perpetrated this hoax by getting these rhesus monkeys, which were used in rocket sled experiments. Later on, they switched to chimps because they're a lot easier to work with. But they were using these rhesus monkeys, and they had little G-suits made for them. And they so they had these little little G-suits made for these rhesus monkeys, and, and they also had helmets with oxygen equipment on them and whole works. And they would put them on this rocket sled and to test for how much acceleration they were trying to determine how much acceleration a human could stand and so they had three of these dead monkeys and one almost dead and they used them in this hoax they made a fake little flying saucer they couldn't use a real one because that would be a violation of security so they made a fake one out of aluminum and, and sheet metal and, and stock aluminum and a little uh, a little canopy and they they then photographed these and then they sent the photographs out with the news of the of this uh, of this crash. Then they fabricated a, a, fa- a crash, and uh, and went out and you know went through the routine of uh, supposedly finding these uh, this spaceship. Except the spaceship didn't have any dents on it or anything, and it was not, it was 12 feet in diameter. The photographs don't exist anymore. I had two of the original photographs that were given to me by a newsman who'd found them in an old newspaper office down in uh, Lovington. But immediately after this this incident, the Pentagon immediately came in. They were flipped out because evidently they hadn't cleared this hoax through the Pentagon. The Pentagon flipped flipped out because it was amateurish. Anyone could have could have taken those photographs and determined that they were monkeys. And the spaceship was silly. It was all silly. It had so many holes in the in the thing. It wasn't funny. The hoax was full of holes. And so they immediately retrieved all those photographs. They'd sent them out to all the area newspapers. In, in the southwestern region, right around Roswell, and uh, uh, the uh, photographs that, that I had, one of them showed the, the monkeys in the G suits, and the other one, and, uh, ghastly-looking pictures, because these dead monkeys really looked horrible. But that's where the whole alien idea, the, the way the aliens looked, comes from, is from those rhesus monkeys, because they had to shave them to make the G-suits work. The G-suits worked on pressure. They had uh, they had tubes that ran around the back and down the arms and down the legs that had lacings around them, and those tubes would then uh, fill up full of air when the, when the stress was applied to the body from acceleration. And the stress would then, uh, the pressure from those tubes would 
tighten all those cords and tighten the suit around the body and force the blood back up to the head so that the palate wouldn't lose consciousness. And so they looked like little space suits, and, uh, and it was corny because you, you could, if you'd seen a G-suit, you'd know that's what it was. See? But at that time, these things were probably uh, considered uh, classified. But it was a dumb hoax. So the How come they uh, want to have a hoax? How come, uh, you know, why they can't they? They wanted to make people think the flying saucers that everyone in their area was seeing because everyone was seeing them. They wanted to make everyone think these were from outer space. And why is dumb. that? They want to use that for intimidation? William Cooper believes on July 5th, 1998, there's going to be an invasion, and all these UFOs are going to come down, we're going to look for leaders, and we're going to turn to Masonic orders and Illuminati for the leaders. Oh, I think that's a crock. Uh, all of these, it's no different than those uh, fundamentalist uh, revival ministers that always say that on a certain day the world's coming to an end, you know? I mean, it's, uh, it's about the same caliber. But why don't uh, we just find out about these UFOs? Why do, they have to, why do they have to have the threat of aliens coming down? What are they going to use this for? They don't want for? us to have them because the energy, the energy and transportation secrets, and it will destroy the, destroy the whole new world order if we get these things. It will destroy uh, the power which governments exert over people in dictatorships. So you're and that's what, they're what they are trying to do is pass a bunch of laws to turn us into a dictatorship. So you're saying Roswell was faked. How about cattle mutilations and all those people that claim they have, like, tattoos in them from aliens? How have those been faked? Uh, well, some of these things are real abductions. They, they put on the, they've got teams of people that put on this, these shows for people. They, they basically drug them and take them, and then they expose them to all these people with these little... Uh, uh, equipment. They they wear all this stuff. They've got all this stuff now down based on those original Roswell monkeys is what the original look is. They get, they've get they even got children mixed up in these things. Uh, they uh, dress women and children and, and, and midgets up in small, these little small alien suits and, and uh, do this routine. But they're doing, uh, they do medical research on people and they also want to create the impression that the aliens are coming down here because that's the way they concealed the flying saucer. That's the way the Nazis did it, too. But they didn't, I don't know about the abduction issue, but the idea of the aliens was spread by the Nazis in a whispering campaign. And uh, <laughs> the idea is to keep the public from getting this secret. The Nazis also had some uh, mis uh, disinformational projects that were aerodynamic to make people think flying saucers worked on aerodynamics. They wanted to conceal this because the Trilateral Commission, actually, and the Illuminati has always been in control of this, uh, this secret. And uh, so the idea is to make everybody think, uh, if, if they do believe in flying saucers, make them think they're from outer space or they're based on some the wrong technology or they're based on some technology that's so, so difficult that no one could ever duplicate it. So, uh, or based on alien technology, uh, and they've got all these lies. I call them the big lies, and it's part of the big lie tactics that the, the Nazis developed in their mass psychology program. Cattle mutilation? Any comment on that at all, Bill Lynn? And you are yeah, Bill Lynn. Yeah, ca cattle mutilations are basically they're testing stealth weapons on cattle. And the reason they use cattle is because uh, they would ha if they kill the animals, they have to dispose of the carcasses. And this, this they is not aliens. This is the no, CIA. Right. It's OSI, basically. And they fly around, and they, these are saucer weapons. So what they want is a weapon they can kill anybody they want to with these weapons, but nobody will ever know they were murdered. In other words, uh, they can shoot you with a beam. They can come to your house at night, shoot you with this beam. You die of, of something like pneumonia, a hantavirus, 
uh, AIDS or a, ter- a terminal pneumonia, and it's because all of your immune cells and your and your uh, your oncogenes have been destroyed by this beam, and so that's what they're testing on these cattle. The solution uh, for this is to build your own UFO, and you actually have plans for that in your book, Bill. Perhaps you can give an address where people can ta- contact you or phone you. All you've got to do is uh, is my address is Lamy, New Mexico. Bill Line, L-Y-N-E, Lamy, L-A-M-Y, New Mexico, 87540. And that's that's all the address you really need. And uh, the book's twenty four ninety five right now. I'm I'm going to have a revised edition that will sell for just under eighteen dollars. Uh, coming down on the price, uh, so I can get more books out there. And in your and, book, you tell how to make a UFO. Uh, yes, I have some plans, and I have heard. I haven't seen these. I haven't witnessed these myself, but I have been told by reliable witnesses that this 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 idea works. We should say flying saucer, and this is all based on the Tesla principle. And also joining us right now, we have A.O. Chapman here from CITR. A.O., are you there? I am here. Yeah. A.O. Oh, oh, you've got somebody calling? Yeah, we have A.O. in the studio. A.O., you have a question for Bill Lynn at all. Yeah, I was going to get back to the men in black, uh, Bill, if, if, if possible. I was going to ask you, and uh, some of the stuff that I've read about you, you believe that they... Actually, A.O., can you move to the other... Can you grab the other mic for a second? Oh, is it, oh I can hear yeah. him. Oh, okay, there we go. Um, how about the men in black? Uh, I was going to ask you, it's your belief that the, the men in black are actually, they've, they're actually OSI agents yes. that have gone through some kind of plastic surgery to make them <laughs> yeah. look? Make them look Mongo. They, they have, this guy that I know had this, I could see right away that he had surgery on his eyes. You know, he's no more, uh, you know, he's no more Asian than the man in the moon, but he had this operation that makes his eyes look strange so that when he puts on his gear, when he was a younger man, put on his gear and go out and intimidate somebody, they're going to think he's, uh, from somewhere else, you know. Right, and 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 he uh, personally intimidated you. Is is that? Yeah, true? yeah. I couldn't believe it because I could probably punch a guy out with one punch. But you know, they've got power behind them. They've got government agents and everybody else. But the guy was uh, was actually uh, uh, threatening me. Right. Because and you were going to write this book that's saying UFOs are real or flying saucers are real. Yeah. And now that the book is out. Uh, have you continued to get uh, threats, or or have they? Well, that kind of removes the motive, you know, because right. uh, the whole idea is to shut this guy up. But now the word's out, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so at this point, they've got to shut up a lot more people. Right. And and, uh, and now and now that the book is out, and 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 people are checking it out, and you're you're getting out and speaking about it and stuff. You've uh, been blackballed, haven't you? Oh yeah. Well, I I lived in abject poverty. I mean, I was just uh, everything that I tried to do to uh, to. to rise out of my circumstances was shut off they would they would create traps for me and uh, they would get me into real estate deals and then end up in, in and i'd end up in court for five or six seven years and then i i realized that the same people were setting all these things up that they were manipulating all of these uh, real estate deals first they tried to give give me some over a million dollars worth of real estate and i refused it because i suspected there was something wrong with it i couldn't figure out i found some uh, I was assessed taxes on a piece of real estate that was worth over it's worth over a million dollars right now, and so I went down to the assessor's office and it took me four days to get them to remove it from my uh, uh, as my property, and it was signed by uh, three uh, uh, prominent New Mexicans, uh, 
Bill, we mentioned we mentioned uh, uh, William Cooper before, who has a book out and talks about you some broke similar. Broke William Cooper in his town, didn't you, A.O. Chapman? I, I did. I did. I, I introduced uh, William Cooper to his town, and I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not an enthusiast or or uh, an acolyte of, of Cooper's work. But I mean, we we talked about him briefly before, and and I'm curious if you have any opinions about his uh, his information in his books and stuff. Well, uh, the first thing that I brought up to him when I met him, I said, well, you know what? He was saying this thing about the aliens. I said, uh, you know, that's a bunch of baloney. You know, there's no right. aliens. And now he's switched to this. He's now saying this. He got a copy of my book the minute it was off the press. Now he's saying that they're exclusively man-made. So I applaud him going along with that. But right. I, would, I would appreciate him giving me credit for right. having uh, pointed this out. Right. But uh, uh, this... Um, uh, you know, he's got a lot of interesting information in his book on the CFR, especially. Right. Uh, but I've seen this material before. This goes, I saw this material, you know, back in 60, 1960, 61. I saw this material because the Birch Society had the same information on the CFR and, uh, and the Bilderbergs. And I had some friends who knew about all this stuff, and they, they told me a lot of stuff about this. They knew a lot about Tesla. Just a second here, Bill. I was wondering, maybe you could tell the listeners just winding up here to Nardwar, the Human Survey Radio Show. We're talking to Bill Lynn. If you have any questions for Bill Lynn, it's 822-2487-UBCCITR. We can relay your question. But what is the Bilderberg Group and the Trilateral Commission, and why would somebody want to do all this stuff? Why would they want to form to get all this in this make-rich scheme, you know, keep Hitler alive, etc.? Why would they want to do this? What are these groups, the Bilderberg and Trilateral? Well, you see, I don't think uh, that anybody wanted particularly to keep Hitler alive so much as Hitler had had uh, a bargaining power. He could have nuked the United States with those missiles. He had these neutron bombs, and they had to agree to these conditions, but also they could acquire all this technology. So in a way, the Germans, the German scientists were nothing more than slaving away on stuff that they didn't even use. The stuff wasn't even used in the war. They had all this research. And it was just used to buy the the amnesty for these uh, these war criminals. Now, Bill, I get curious in in this age of uh, conspiracy theories and whatnot, and 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 uh, and so on. Like, how do you, how do you react to people who who listen to you or read articles about you or come across your book and and, and read it uh, that just cast you off as as some wacko paranoid in in the middle of New Mexico or like? Well, I'm not I'm not a paranoid person. I if I were, you know, I would uh, be in bad shape. Right. But uh, uh, paranoia is unjustified suspicion. Because saying you met Hitler in 1967, that's going to write off a lot of people, isn't it? Well, I'm not the only one. I've run across other people, prominent people, who've said the same thing. Right. So, uh, to me, your uh, whole argument seems credible, but then when I tell people your argument, they say, oh, he met Hitler in 67? Well, look, or do you look, wonder how old you are? I'll, you think tell, I'll tell you some more people I met, and, and, uh, and, and you're going to disbelieve this, but Go this has it. been documented. The people who, live across the, who lived across the street from me when I was a kid were the descendants of Frank James. Okay, In 1947, they had a get-together, and at that get-together, it's just a family get-together for the 4th of July, <laughs> was Jesse James, Frank James, and Brushy Bill Roberts, also known as Billy the Kid. They were all old men. They were all still alive. They were all they, they were practically relatives, to, to tell you the truth. The James family and the, and the Roberts family were almost relatives. They came very close to being relatives, and they'd known each other since they were babies. And uh, there and then there was an old man also who rode with them in the Lincoln County Wars and Quantrill's Raiders 
named uh, Mr. Shea, who was a veteran of the Army of Northern Virginia, and he was also at the get-together, and he was the grandfather of this good friend of mine, uh, Thomas Mulkey. And uh, so here were all these guys who were all, uh, except Mr. Shea, he was the only one that was still supposed to be still alive. The other three were supposed to be, uh, the two of the other three were supposed to be dead because Frank James was known uh, to, to have lived out his life in Valley Mills, Texas, where he ran an antique business. And uh, so here were these people who are all supposed to be dead. Well, that's the same thing with Hitler. Uh, these guys got amnesty because they knew something on somebody important. Right. And uh, the, the James brothers had incriminating evidence. And you met them. On, and you met, and you met, yes. Yeah, yes. Just when, when I was you, a little kid. You were a little kid, and, and you went out next door, and you met Frank and Jesse James. And, and yeah, and, and the, the kids in the family got whippings for really? telling me too much. Really? And I, I never told anybody until, you know, after all these people were dead. I, I, never, I never revealed that secret. So what is this but, trilateral corporate commission and Bilderberg group? It's this group of people that want to have this weird new world order that really was sent to place in 1923. What are those groups? I keep asking this question, Bill. Well, they're basically, uh, if you trace back, you know, there are different trains of thought on it. Some people believe that they go all the way back to Babylon, you know, and, and before uh, some people believe that they started in uh, in 1776 with Adam Weishaupt's uh, uh, renewal of the uh, Illuminati, uh, which had actually started as the Order of, Order of Devoted back in Iran uh, by Hassan Isabah. And uh, but I trace I trace this murder cult stuff back to Tibet, but uh, I trace the the actual Illuminati. Uh, is which is connected to that. Uh, to uh, I think there's some justification that it goes all the way back to the ancient Egyptians and and possibly even uh, Sumerians. Who's right. in on it right now? Clinton, Yeltsin. Who's in on this? Uh, well, Clinton's a member of the Trilateral Commission. I think the Trilateral Commission, as we know it by that name, came into existence with the New World Order and the Trilateral Contract which is Britain, America, and Germany. That, In other words, instead of a surrender, there was actually a fusion at the end of the war between America and Germany and Britain in this, in this, all this shared technology, which they were actually, they actually, what they'd done is just made slaves out of these scientists. These scientists were just bargained around like so many chips. And, uh, so basically, the, the corporations really got filthy rich off of this stuff and creating this. The, the, the Nazis that were in this security thing churned up the whole Cold War. They basically uh, stirred up this idea that the Russians were going to attack us any minute. And it turned out that this was all a fantasy. Now, Bill, people, uh, maybe it's, it's uh, important maybe to go into this, and, and especially for people who are doing it late, people who don't know. Uh, what kind of educational background do you have? You have you went to the University of Texas, didn't you? And, and yes, got I have your an master's. MFA in painting and sculpture, and I also had an undergraduate degree in uh, in art and industrial engineering, and also had a uh, a year of law school. Right. And and how did your life get work into this uh, uh, knowledge of conspiracy well, theories? Well, I got a I got a, uh, harassed uh, judicially. I was judicially abused. For 17 years here, uh, starting with that uh, original offer, they actually started the harassment. And the minute George Bush really got into the CIA was in 1974, just before the year came to an end, because he got in there and started uh, learning the ropes. 
And that's when the harassment started because they wanted to motivate me to accept that offer. Now, people who have been harassed, like yourself, uh, what, I'm curious to know what kind of advice you would give to somebody uh, – Somebody today, somebody, uh, the common person like myself, a student or so on and so on. <laughs> Your advice but, is to build a UFO, isn't it, Bill? Huh? Your advice to save yes, ourselves yes. is to build a UFO yeah, and turn and this also, technology you know on to them. important to tell it to everybody. And right. again, you can build a UFO by writing away for your book, Bill, and your name is Bill Lynn, L-Y-N-E, and perhaps you can give your, I love the word perhaps, 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 you can give your address one more time. Uh, all you have to put is my name and Lamey. New Mexico, 87540. General delivery. Yeah, you can put general delivery if you want to. Yeah. And that a works. caller phoned in and wondered, are the international tobacco companies and associated with this at all, Bill? Are the what? International tobacco companies. Is there anything associated about the international tobacco companies? In Export A. You know, are they associated with this at all? Like who? Tobacco, uh, you know, cigarettes. The cigarette companies. Uh, are they in on this hoax? Who knows? I mean, uh, what what would that? You mean uh, just? I I can't make a relationship right off other than if they want to just kill off a bunch of people. You know, uh, tobacco is very, you know, poisonous stuff. Also, the uh, caller wanted. Do you have a favorite movie at all? Uh, well, uh, you obviously don't like that one movie that came out a few years ago. There was a total fake. There was there was a movie that I can't even remember the name of that was interesting. It's about cattle mutilations. It had uh, uh, it showed a bunch of strange aircraft flying around and so forth and so on. And I can't remember what was it was it, called. Was it a film called Endangered Species with Joe Beth Williams? They did it in the early eighties. That ring it a bell at all? Might have been. And it had uh, what's that singer? That uh, great big uh, guy uh, was in it. I think it might have been. Great big guy. What's, I don't know. There's a big hulking uh, actor who's also a singer right uh that he might have been in that uh -huh. of course rage is pretty good with george scott and also the formula uh -huh. with uh, marlon brando, uh, brando and, yeah. and uh, david uh uh shoot i can't remember his name he lives in santa fe uh anyway uh, huddleston david huddleston Caller uh, just phoned in again, Bill. I guess we're running out of time, so we're just pushing some information forward. And the caller was wondering about building a UFO. You got these plans from Tesla. Are these your plans for building a UFO? <laughs> How much does it cost to build a UFO? Well, and I, do you need plutonium? I No. It's strictly electrical. Uh, I got the ideas for my plans based on what I found. Now, for example, they, they had a, they had a, what's called a stealth plane crashed in 1993. And shortly after, in a matter of days, there was at a salvage place a device which I could e a diesel easily spotted for, for a switching device which came off of this thing that they hauled off to a salvage place. And I actually saw a CIA truck carrying this salvage uh, and, and dumping it in different uh, uh, salvage yards. So they had gone to some trouble to try to deface this thing so you couldn't tell what it was but what was really odd is none of the electrical components were broken somebody had taken a sledgehammer to it but it was burned and the aircraft was burned and it was a a, a 12 that had 12 of these uh, uh gas filled tubes on it which are called power uh, trons i believe is what they were called Gen general electric power trons that uh, operated at uh, 18.5 i believe it's or 15.5 megavolts or uh, kilovolts which was a switching device, and it had 12 of these things, just like my design shows. And uh, 
uh, which means that this plane actually had this technology on it. It had this saucer technology on this airplane so that it could hover and go sideways and backwards and everything else, and it just looked like an airplane. In other words, they're building a flying saucer that looks like an airplane, so that's another way to conceal it. How much would it cost to build your UFO, Bill? Uh, I would say that you could probably, if you were a craftsman and knew something about technology and had some pretty good tools, you might be able to put something together for um, as little as a thousand bucks to try. Well, you could do a model for just a matter of a uh, couple of hundred bucks. You could you could test it, uh, starting with something like an. Uh, you could take a neon light transformer and a spark gap, which you could make. You can get the plans from the International Tesla Society on making spark gap transmitters and tuning coils to make the power system to test out on a, on a model, which you could then suspend by strings so that you don't have any. The thing you have to watch is you don't want to insulate it. You don't want to, uh, to ground it out. That's what will keep it from flying. So essentially, Bill, in summary, uh, because I guess we're getting down to the end of the show here, uh, uh, the, the idea uh, to protect yourself and, and to be aware that, you know, like there are within the information out, uh, you've been harassed, other people have been harassed, in short, information is, is the best weapon you can have. Yes. Right. And put it out there. If you've got something important, so if they, somebody can stop you from telling somebody that, and they know that you have this information, then you're in danger. So the best thing to do is put the information out, and then the, the motive is removed. There's no, more any, there's no longer any reason to wipe you out because your information's already out there. How easy is it to make a UFO? Do you have to have it that shape? You, you said in your book about Germans flying U-boats around that they could pick <laughs> up anything they wanted to. Well, I think they, uh, yeah, I think, th see, this technology is so powerful, this force is so powerful that they got the idea, of course, they were in, in a tight spot. Uh, they just took, a f uh, instead, of, instead of building something for this, they took an old, uh, just a U-boat hull, the pressure, what they call the pressure hull, which is the inner, inner part, which is round, cigar-shaped, and, uh, and they just... Uh, put some portholes in the bottom and, and took the generators and battery system and hooked them up to this technology and got and flew the thing around. Now, a friend of mine actually saw one of these things. Uh, he and his daughter were coming from the Albuquerque airport and driving back to Santa Fe one night, and this thing uh, stayed over their car all the way back to Santa Fe, and he could see the rivets and uh, the old rusty iron hull. Uh, and when he looked up to it, and this is a very reasonable person. He's not given a flight to fancy or anything like that. But uh, and he really hadn't told anybody about this except me, you know. And I asked when I asked him about it, uh, and the, the the idea gelled that when he talked about the rivets and the old iron hull, I put that together with some more information that I had accumulated in 1957-58 about something strange happening with submarines that uh, that nobody wanted to talk about, and. Uh, so uh, I uh, came up with this idea that they were building these, uh, they were using submarine hulls to build these cigar-shaped uh, flying saucers. How about tunneling in Germany, another fascinating aspect of World War II, and in America, tunneling? It's a known fact, and it was known among people whom I knew, and, and, uh, uh, and other people who I've known a number of people who were military people, and you name it, CIA, you name it. It was a known fact that, that Germany was tunneled from one end to the other, that there were interconnected tunnels going all over the uh, country. And after the war, naturally, the United States took in all these people and duplicated the German plan and uh, tunneled America. In other words, uh, 
uh, ostensibly they were building missile silos, but this this was just a cover for what they were really doing. They built all these Atlas missile silos, and the missile silos had an opening that was over 50 feet in diameter, big enough to get a flying saucer in and out of there. And they would build these tunnels. They'd build one section of tunnel under one contractor, then they'd hire a new contractor to do the next segment and so forth and so on, so that no no uh, contractor knew more than the part that he worked on. But if you knew a couple of these contractors or people that worked for these contractors, you realized that they had that they had interconnected all these tunnels, and these things were all over the country. And so basically they've got an underground tunnel system that goes all over this country, and it's under the idea of national security. And so they got this whole underground world that we don't even know about because I know that these things existed. They're not going to build those things, and then just nobody gets to use them, you know. Why would they build tunnels like they, and these people that I knew that worked in some of these things? Uh just said these tunnels went on forever. Is that what he stored about 15,000 15, Germans after World War II in New Mexico? Yeah, they brought 15,000 to Germany, uh, to, to New Mexico. Now, they brought 115,000 <laughs> Germans. Yeah, they brought, they brought 116 top scientists just with von, Grounds, von Braun's group. Von so there was a total of over 400 brought to New Mexico, and there was probably 1,500 top scientists uh, brought to America, and that didn't include all the technical uh, security and uh, other military personnel that went along with that, pilots and you name it. So there was a total of 15,000 just in New Mexico, but I can't find that documented anywhere anymore. I heard about it through friends of mine and, and so forth. And Vern Von Braun during World War II was flying to the United States of America? Well, not during the war. He came here before the war. When he heard that uh, Goddard had uh, flown 7,500 feet with his rockets, he immediately showed up. It wasn't very long. He showed up over here to find out what Goddard was doing that was better than what he was doing because his, his best rocket was only doing 6,000 feet. And your name is Bill Lynn. Thanks for speaking to us on the Nardwarder Human Serviette radio show here today, Bill Lynn. Really, right. appreci really appreciate that. And I mean, and basically, it's amazing what you're saying. I just cannot believe it. Um, you found all this information from Tesla, who actually built a UFO. Tesla's information was stolen by the government. A new world order was installed in 1923. Germany was decided that they were, Germany was going to be destroyed by Hitler. Hitler was chosen to lead Germany to defeat. Hitler was still alive after 1945. You saw him in 1967, almost sold some art to him. Roswald was fake. Cattles were fake. UFOs are real and you have technology to build a UFO. And we can write to you if people are interested at Bill Lynn, your address again? Lamy, New Mexico. General Delivery, Lamy, New Mexico, 87540. Anything you'd like to add to the listeners out there in Radioland? Anything else? Why should people care about all this UFOs are real stuff, Bill? Well, how would it be if you could get up in the morning and go to Peking to have breakfast and then come back before lunch? and all on a couple of dollars worth of fuel. Would that be nice? Be really hip-hop, hooray, ho-ha. <laughs> and that's what they don't want us to do because that's supposed to be for the elite. The elite, they don't want us eating alongside them in Paris. You know, they don't want to have a bunch of ordinary Americans or whoever eating at, at the same restaurants, you know. And that's what it comes down to. And we could all be doing that with flying saucer technology because it doesn't cost anything to fly these things. It's the 10 to the 40th power. If you, you see work is basically force times distance. 
if the force is stronger, which this force is, then you do that much more work in the same amount of time. So with this huge force, you can take a small amount of fuel or whatever you use, batteries or whatever you want to use, and you can do a tremendous amount of, of traveling very cheaply. And is there's there, no tires to wear out. No is more. there such thing as gravity at all? Yeah, gravity is, is probably electrostatic. From my, from my study of it, it's electrostatic uh, because the electrical reaction is so much stronger than, the, than the, what they call the, uh, the gravitational reaction, which is nothing more than a weak electrical reaction. It's weak because there's just a tiny amount of difference in charge between the proton and the electron. The proton has a little bit of excess positive charge, and that's where gravity comes from. If they were equal, there wouldn't be any gravity. Well, thank you very much, Bill Lynn, again. I hope that all the listeners out there in Orlando know the Nardwater Human Serviette Show does not get any cuts into Bill's book, but again, your address. In case people want to build a UFO, for God's sakes, Vancouver, you can build a UFO. You can build a UFO for less than a 1000 bucks if you write to Bill right now, and the book is about 30 bucks. What's your address? Again, please give your address. You can build a UFO. Peking for breakfast. General Delivery, Lamy, New Mexico. 87540. Thanks so much, Bill. Really appreciate your time. Keep on rocking in a free world. It was very nice talking to you, too, Nardwar. All right. And, 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 uh, and uh, have a nice evening, you people out there. All right. Okay. Have a great evening and enjoy this music. Do okay. Do-do-do-do-do. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah.